Good morning. It's great to join you this morning for worship. I'm uh, excited to be here for a number of reasons, but uh, I want to say I would, I'd like to start this this time. I'm going to preach here in a moment, but I want to say thank you to you, church. Uh, back in November, we launched a Vision 2020 campaign. Had no idea 2020 would look the way it has looked, but you have continued. You were faithful up front, and you've continued to be faithful throughout this year. Um, and you're sitting in an auditorium that looks different than it did in November of 2011. You can walk down the halls and check out all the classrooms. And the, the offices just were painted and, and carpeted this week. Uh, we are almost done as far as those kind of things are concerned. We didn't plan on the bathrooms, but I might add some water to the extra paint and get those bathrooms done too because uh, it's, anyways. Uh, this place looks awesome, and it's you to thank. So can you guys just go ahead and, and celebrate? There, there are a number of other things that we, we wanted to address with the, the Vision 2020 funds. Uh, you know, we talked about HVAC as being that iceberg that's looming in the distance, and this iceberg actually hit us this past winter, and we're getting that taken care of thanks to your generosity. Uh, There's also little icebergs that we didn't see in the water, like the hot water heater, which is an industrial thing. Which, Anyways, I can't tell you how timely your generosity has been for this church, so thank you, church. Uh, just a few things. I probably should have started with this. My name is Jerome. I'm the pastor here. I know you guys know that, but if you're a guest, uh, you may not. Look, it's, nope, it's right there on the back wall. It says Jerome Sack, lead pastor. Um, if you're a guest, you, you, now you know. Uh, and so uh, at the end of service, I normally stand at these doors and would love to, to meet you if you'd come in. Actually, if you're a guest with us, there's something called a connection card. Everyone who calls Radiant Home fills this out, places it in the offering basket, which will be at the doors as you leave, because we're not passing a basket during this COVID season. Uh, if you take that and fill that out with information about uh, whatever information you're comfortable sharing about yourself, give us a chance to say thank you for being our guest. Um, it's just a, a great opportunity to, to connect and uh, see how your experience was with us. It's not a high-pressure sales pitch, I promise. So um, would love for you to do that if you're a guest. So thank you for being here. And as I mentioned to the rest of you uh, who call Radiant Home, who are already so generous, uh, you can give at the doors as you leave today, as well as online. If you text GIVE, you can give online to 317-676-2040. You'll get a link back. You can give online, and that's how we do it in the SAC household. And it's a wonderful blessing in terms of staying on you know, stewardship and being faithful. So highly recommend that. Um, would you pray with me as we get to the message? Father, we thank you. What a great privilege it is to meet with you. Um, for many of us, uh, we, or actually all of us, we sat on the sidelines for, uh, for months, not able to gather together with one another. We worshiped online, but there's something about being together, and even still others in this congregation are watching online. What a joy and privilege we have to worship you and to meet with you whether we're here or in our living rooms, would you speak to us, Lord, through this, this time, this message? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you uh, are new to Radiant, you've been here over the last couple months, or uh, we've had a number of families kind of join us here recently, and you, you don't know this, and if, even if you call Radiant home, if you've been here from day one of uh, my time as pastor here, you may know the story. Have I ever told you guys about the kidnapping attempt in the Philippines? Maybe once. Yeah? No? Okay. I don't like to talk about it a whole lot. Um, 
Well, Heather and I, our family, we were missionaries in 2009, moved to the Philippines, and our youngest, not our youngest, at the time, our youngest child was born there, and uh, my mother-in-law came and visited for six weeks, but that's, it's wonderful. I love my mother-in-law. <laughs> and uh, her last day in the country before she was supposed to fly home, we take her out. We have a babysitter watching uh, these two here. They were just barely seven and a year and a half old. Now they're 17 and almost 13. We take my, my mother-in-law out to dinner with the baby, with the babysitter, watching the two oldest children. And we get a phone call. It's a long story. How about I tell you over coffee sometime? But um, there was an attempt, uh, kind of a scheme thing. Uh, my neighbors called. They were Australian missionaries and uh, told us what had happened. Our babysitter got a phone call that there was a car crash. It's just the whole scheme of how they, they take somebody in. It's a long story. There were some, some things I'd love to admit to you in private about that thing. But um, all I, I remember that night going to a friend's house, fellow missionaries that were really good friends of ours, and we slept in the same bedroom, like one of the kids' bedrooms. And I remember going to the restroom. I know that's too much information, but it's part of the story. And I remember coming back in to this bedroom where the five of us are sleeping and locking the door inside the house, inside of a gate, I mean, it, it was just one of those things that was pretty traumatic. And I remember driving the next day and, and really kind of being ticked off. Can I say that in a sermon? I just did. I was really upset with God. I felt betrayed. I mean, here we are. We sold everything we owned. We go to the other side of the globe, following Jesus, and then this thing happens within the first, what, six, seven months? Oh, yeah, and there was a flood that, 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 that we went through, and there was a car accident, and I was in court in a third world country. It's kind of scary. Um, and I remember saying, God, this is, like, this is the first six months as our, in our missionary career. And I thought, I, we're, we're, I've done my part, God. Like, where is your part? Right? Like, it's one thing to be very honest in prayer, and I think it's a good thing to say, God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm upset. The prophet Jeremiah did that. But there's another thing when you kind of approach your faith and your walk with God and your, you approach life with kind of an entitlement attitude. And, and quite honestly, that's what I had. If I do my part, then God has to do his part. I'm following, then I should be blessed and life should be good, right? And some of us who know better, we still kind of fall into that when we face difficulties. See, the problem is, and I've learned this in ministry, it's not so much about like the event that happens, but the interpretation. The same traumatic event can make two people have very different responses. One can draw closer to God and one can walk away. It's all in how they see that. And if you think that you're entitled to being blessed just because you do your part, that, man, we are so blessed and we have not done any, our part. It's just, the gospel is the story of us being blessed without doing our part, Right? But the problem is, if our interpretation allows, we begin to second-guess God. We ask God, like, do you even know? Excuse me. Do you even know? Are you even there? Do you even care? And if you do care, then why don't you do something about it? Why don't you change this person? Why don't you heal my marriage? Why don't you help me with my teenage child? Why don't you intervene in my business affairs? Why don't you bring physical healing and depending on how we interpret it, and when we begin to second-guess God, and beginning, depending on what he does and whether or not he does the things the way we think he should do things, we find ourselves in trouble in terms of 
how we view him and how we view this whole walking with him. See, the passage I have today actually shows that God is incredibly, is, is, is incredibly concerned and cares despite the appearances. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 11. Perhaps one of the most famous stories in the book of John. You, you learned about this in Sunday school, I'm sure. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, if you're just now joining us or recently joining us, we are going through the book of John, and uh, John lays out his purpose unapologetically. We haven't got to that point yet in John chapter 20 when he goes, I've written these things so that you'll believe and have life in him. He wants people to know who Jesus is. He wants to know that, that you, there is life in him. So last time we were together, we had a baptism service, but two weeks ago, we were looking at John chapter 10, and we saw it was the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Well, today it's the last it's like the climax of all his miracles. He has done miraculous signs, is the way John puts it, miraculous acts that show who he is. And he would speak very often about, you know, he feeds 5,000. And he taught, says, I am the bread of life. You know, things like that. And it's taking place. Well, this is like the end. This is the biggest one. I mean, he's about to raise someone from the dead. And here it's actually interesting because he kind of comes up, unlike the other ones where there's a miracle followed by teaching, he kind of gives his I am statement, you know, I am the resurrection, which we're going to read before he even heals Lazarus and raises him from the dead. So we're coming kind of to the end, the end of his public ministry, the end of the miraculous signs, and we're coming to the end of the first half of the book, which is the, the book of signs. And what we're going to see uh, in chapter 12 is kind of a transition, and then the last half of the book is the book of glory. What's interesting is what, what we have done since John chapter 1, verse 1, to, to, to this point, or even into the next chapter, is about the span of three, three and a half years. But the last half of the book of John happens in about a week. So keep that in mind as we move forward. If you have your Bibles, read with me. John chapter 1, chapter 1, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet, and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling them, Lord, your dear friend is sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the, God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. You remember that at the very end of chapter 10? And he leaves because they want to stone him. And so we'll talk about the setting here in a second. Uh, are you going to go there? They want to stone you. You're going to go there? Verse 9, Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely when they can see because they have light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will get better soon. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let us go see. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go to and die with Jesus. 
let's, take a, let's talk about what we just read. And there, there's a, this is a long passage. I probably will not read large portions like that again. We'll just kind of skim through because it, it, is, it is lengthy. But this is an important part, just the beginning here. That setting is, is um, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus... Bethany, I know there's a number of Bethany's. There's one on the other side of the Jordan where, where John the Baptist was, was baptizing. This is, this is just in the shadow of Jerusalem, just two miles away to the east of Jerusalem. So he had left Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him, but now he was going to go back within that same, that same area. Um, Jesus, he was close to this family. We know this from Luke chapter 10 when Mary and Martha opened their home to him. Remember that story? Martha's working Mary's kind of sitting. Jesus knew this family. He was close to this family. Very likely he based himself out of their home when he was in Jerusalem. He had spent time with this family. So this is why they said, someone that you dearly love. Now, verses 5 through 6. Now, here's the crazy part. We're going to kind of touch this, and we're going to come back to it. Look at verses 5 through 6 again. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed there for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So although he loved, and actually, can I be honest with you, the New Living Translation tries to make sense of it because it seems like it doesn't make sense. If you have a more formal translation, your Bible probably says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he stayed for two more days. It's like a, he loved them, therefore he stayed. Like, I love you so much, I'm not going to rush to your aid. I'm going to stay. That's hard to, to kind of wrap our heads around because we feel like it's almost cruel. To know that somebody needs help and to not act on that is cruel to people like us who are saying, I'm going to avoid all pains that I could avoid, and if I find myself in pain, I want relief of that pain as soon as possible. But here, Jesus, he's not uninformed, but the question, the question is, is he indifferent? Is he being cruel? This is where we question God's care, not necessarily his presence, because he, he knows. So we intend to, to interpret, and we do this in our own lives, kind of based on our values. I don't want pain, and I want pain to be relieved as fast as possible, but Jesus, who loves them, stays. Now, it's very possible that Lazarus was already dead by the time the message came to him. You, you, you allow for the two days of uh, him waiting, the day that the messenger had to travel to them, because remember, he's far away now, and then the day that Jesus had to travel. The timing is kind of iffy, and there's different ideas on the timing, but it's very possible Lazarus was already dead by the time the message got to him. What is absolutely clear is that Lazarus is dead by the time Jesus shows up. And not just dead, he's all dead. If you've learned anything from Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, <laughs> is there's a difference between being mostly dead and all dead, right? See, the Jewish thought would, would be this, that, that for the first, like, three days, resurrection was possible. Like, the spirit of someone would, like, hover over that body. But then day four, when, it's, when, they, when the spirit begins to see the body start to decay, they're like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm not going back in there. Really, rabbinical teaching, not, not in the Old Testament, but like rabbinical thought and teaching at that time was a belief. And so, so Jesus allows for him to show up. He's been dead four days. Resurrection is not possible. <laughs> and then you already laughed at this. I was going to make a joke about this, but Thomas's comment at the end, like, yeah, let's go. Let's go die with Jesus to Jerusalem. 
Isn't that, isn't that funny? Like, if you read the Bible with, like, some personality, like, the first thing I thought of here was, like, Gimli from Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm talking about? When Aragorn's like, we got to storm the Black Gate, and some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you do, and I'm talking to you. And Gimli goes, certainty of death, small chance for success, what are we waiting for? Like, that's Thomas right there. Like, let's go die with this guy. Ironically, isn't there a little foreshadowing there with Jesus going to Jerusalem to die? Anyway. Now, if we keep reading verses 17 through 27, we'll see that he encounters Martha. He heads there. Martha hears that he's coming. She goes out to meet him. And there's a crowd of people there who are with Mary and Martha, consoling them from Jerusalem. This is probably points to the fact that they are, they have some, they have some, they're probably wealthy, have some affluence uh, for the the people from Jerusalem to come visit him. It's kind of a thing. Anyways, Martha comes out to meet Jesus, being her true self, the one who is prone to, act, to action. And uh, she just looks at Jesus and says, man, he, she probably didn't say man. Man. <laughs> Martha's not from the 1990s like me. Uh, Martha says, if you had been here, then my brother, my brother would still be alive. And Jesus, now, Interestingly enough, she's not questioning his ability, just his availability. He wasn't available. And what's funny is we know that Jesus can heal from a distance. He's done that. But he doesn't. And she's like, if you had been here, I know you could have, this would be, be different. And he says, your brother will rise again. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know. My brother will rise again at the resurrection, the very last day, which is what Jesus talks about throughout the book of John, the resurrection the resurrection, it's also in line with um, Pharisaic Judaism. I mean, that's, they look forward to the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in it anyways. That's a little background there. And she's like, yeah, he'll rise again. And she's, Jesus obviously is talking about something a little bit sooner than that, but she doesn't necessarily understand. When he references resurrection in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, he does so. Um, it's always like he's the one in cooperation with the Father who's going to bring resurrection. So what's interesting here is when she's like, yeah, he'll rise again at the resurrection, he says, read it with me in verse 25, you, just look, you can glance down, I am the resurrection and the life. Just like when he fed people bread, he was more than just feeding people bread from heaven. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am, bread of, I am the bread from heaven. More than just raising people from the dead, he is the resurrection. It's the same type of thing. Jesus, um, her response to Jesus is like, oh yeah, I, I believe you're the Messiah, which is a great response. It's a, it's, a, it's a confession of faith that others in the book of John have not understood or seen yet. And she makes a statement, but yet she's still missing it because she still thinks he's talking about like the resurrection to come. She doesn't think, oh yeah, okay, you're the resurrection, you're going you're gonna to bring my brother back. We know that because later in this same story, when they're standing outside the tomb, Jesus says, roll away the stone. She's like, whoa, Jesus, that's going to smell bad. It's been four days. She's still not expecting it. Why is she standing there at the tomb? So she's processing in her mind, trying to come up with an understanding of what exactly is, is taking place. And we're going to come back to this. Because remember I said this passage is a story of God's care and concern despite appearances about the interpretation of what is going on and how sometimes we are striving for an interpretation that will please us, but, but really God's doing something else. 
the very next section, 28 through 37, we see that uh, she goes back to Mary, says, Mary, you got to go see the teacher. He's, he wants to talk to you. She takes off. The crowd that's there to comfort Mary uh, was like, oh, she must be going to the, the, to the tomb. So they follow. So now this crowd comes to Jesus with Mary in lead. And she says the same thing. If you had been here, it must have been a conversation they've had. Could you imagine those days of waiting for Jesus to show up, just saying, boy, so close. All we needed is him to be here, and this could have been different. Mary is weeping as she approaches him. He sees that. Verse 33 says that Jesus was, he saw her weeping and the people wailing, and a deep anger welled up within him, and he was he was deeply troubled. Jesus was moved by their grief. He was angry and troubled over the reality of sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. Perhaps he was even angry at the mourners who were mourning as if there is no hope because he knows there's hope because he is the resurrection and the life. Now the word that, Jesus, that Paul, John uses for Jesus weeping here is different than the weeping that they did. His weeping, perhaps he did that to kind of show us the difference between their weeping without hope and his tears and anger and troubledness over sin. His recognition that he is the resurrection and they failed to see it, they failed to understand. Jesus is weeping because of the very things that he's angry and troubled about. Then we get to verses 38 through 40. The actual resurrection Jesus orders the stone to be removed, and I mentioned a second ago, Martha objects, like, Lord, you can't open that thing. It's going to smell bad. It's been four days. And Jesus responds, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Wait a minute. There's this element of glory here, um, which we're going to come to. Then he prays, and he calls Lazarus forward, and Lazarus comes out. And he says, you know, unwrap him. I don't know how Lazarus came out, if he was like, this, or if he was like this, but, but, but nonetheless, there is like a, a foreshadowing and like a glimpse to like, like Lazarus' resurrection in some ways points to Jesus' resurrection, but in some ways it's different. What does Jesus do when he comes out of the tomb? He like folds the stuff up and lays it down, right? It's, it's a far different resurrection. But yet he's, he's, he's setting it up. Right before this book transitions into him being in the upper room, preparing his disciples for his departure, he is the resurrection and the life. This story, as I mentioned, kind of reflects us. I think I, see, I think I see myself in this story in a number of places. Martha, for sure. Perhaps even the disciples. But then even as a reader, I find myself trying to make sense of some of this story. See, I think we're like Martha and the disciples in the sense that um, we're trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying and how he's acting and what he's doing. And don't we do that in life when we don't understand what God is doing? We feel like this doesn't make sense. Look at some of Jesus' responses to the news that Lazarus is ill. Look at verse 4. Go back to the beginning. Verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. Does that kind of seem almost dismissive? Like, eh, no big deal. Yeah. Messenger comes, treks all the way to Jesus. Ah, it won't lead to death. Verse 5. Jesus loves 
therefore he stays. I've already mentioned the, the translation. I mean, the, the NLT tries to help us out with that. That seems to be like, it doesn't make sense. They try to help us, but, but really it is what it is. It's, Jesus says, I love you, but I'm not coming. Have you ever felt that that's been the situation for you? And then verse 14, he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad about it. For your sake, I'm glad. That seems weird. Or am I the only one who thinks that's strange? Like, are, would you be uncomfortable when Jesus says, so-and-so is dead, and I'm glad for your sake? Like, oh, I, I don't know, Jesus. There's one thing I've left out on purpose. It's the rest of verse 4. Let's read all of verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. This illness does not lead to death. It, what is the it here? The illness is for the glory of God. That's a tough one to swallow, is it not? This illness is for the glory of God. It's very much like the man born blind in John chapter 9 that we looked at about a month ago where the disciples were trying to figure out who sinned to make this man blind. And, and, and we came out of that whole thing with, listen, God's glory can be found in all of your story. That was the point about a month ago. All of his story was for God's glory. Even his circumstances coming into the world born blind. See, Jesus saw what others didn't see. He saw this as an opportunity for God's glory. He saw this as an opportunity for, for God to be glorified and for the Son of God to be glorified. He is fully in control of these circumstances. And quite honestly, the most loving thing, if you want to go back to that, that, the difficulty between verses 5 and 6, I'm loving you, but I'm not coming. I, I love you, but I'm going to stay for two extra days. What's the most loving thing that you can do for someone. What's the most loving thing God can do for someone? It's to reveal his glory to them. For us to see him and his glory is far more loving than interacting and fixing my problems or my situation that's immediate, even though in those moments, this is what I care about. But he's saying, I'm going to reveal who I am and my plan and my glory through this. And then Martha tries to make sense of stuff. In their interaction, when she comes out to Jesus... Martha tries to make sense of things and says, listen, uh, you, you weren't here in time, and that's okay. If you were here, he would be healed. And he's like, you know, your brother will be resurrected. Oh, I know he will on the last day. She's still trying to figure things out on her own. And I can't fault her because that's what we do. We try to make sense of what God is doing. This is kind of a, the thing I want you to take away from today. It's a, it's a different point for me, but, but here's what I believe. If you can make sense of your God, then you probably don't have the God of the Bible. If you can make sense of your God, then you probably don't have the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible means, means that there's room for mystery. The God of the Bible means that we understand that he is God and we are not. When we're talking about the God of the Bible, there's an understanding 
that we're not going to always understand his ways or his wisdom. But it's when we don't understand that we actually rest in faith. You see, we want God to show up. We want God to intervene. We want God to prove himself and show himself strong. But we hate all the, like, we love that, but we hate all the circumstances in which we need him to do that. We curse those circumstances that are opportunities for God to show up. When we can't understand is when we actually rest in faith. We're not resting because we have the answer that we want. We're resting because we have to trust him. If you can make sense of your God, then you probably don't have the God of the Bible. Certainly not the God of John chapter 11, the Jesus who raises Lazarus, the Jesus who stays for two days, the Jesus who seems dismissive, but he's also the one who weeps because of the grief and the problem of sin. So here's what I want you to do today. and Just a couple of takeaways from this. First of all, be slow to assign blame to God. Because with a little patience and a little spiritual insight, you'll likely be giving him the credit. I sat in that car in the Philippines the day after this kidnapping thing, a couple weeks after a flood and a car accident. I blamed God. But a decade later, I look back and say, look what the Lord has done. Be slow, be slow. I've introduced this before. I'd like to do it again. There's three questions that I'd like to give to you and take this because it's been very helpful for us. It's been helpful in conversations in our home. When you find yourself facing circumstances that are overwhelming, the difficulties, the storms of life, whatever you want to say, Ask these three questions. Take these three questions into prayer with you. First one is, does God know your situation? Now, we might feel like God doesn't know. It may feel like God's not there. But if we stop and we really, and if you're a Christian and you, you know that God knows your situation. I don't think anyone who's a Bible-believing Christian will say God doesn't know. It may feel like he doesn't know. Does God know your situation? Is your situation too big for him to handle? Once again, it may feel like it's too big to handle when I'm, but if I stop and I think, is this too big for God? The answer is no. Those are like the easy questions, right? The all-powerful God of creation, he knows and he can handle it. But the third question is the hard question. Does God have good plans for your life? I don't know that I always answer that question with a yes. But doesn't Scripture tell us he has good plans? Not plans according to what I think are good plans, but his good plans. That all things work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you are a believer, that's you. That's who Paul is writing to in Romans chapter 8. Does God have good plans for your life? And if he has good plans for your life, that's going to help you from a from assigning blame too quickly and waiting to see what he'll do. And that wait may take four days or it may take 40 years. We see that in the Bible too. Sorry to break that to you. 
If you're not a Christian today, this, this story is probably something that you may have heard about, actually. It's probably showed up in popular culture. It probably showed up on the episode of The Simpsons or something. But uh, um, this story is Jesus setting up what he's about to do. It's the last miracle in the book of John. He's in the shadow of Jerusalem. He'll leave as a result of this because they want to kill him now. They really want to kill him now. As a matter of fact, they want to kill Lazarus too. The religious leaders want to take him out. He leaves, but he comes back and he doesn't leave again. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We find life only in him. He is the one who's conquered death. It's funny because we kind of are used to death, even in Christian circles. It's just a natural part of life. No, it's not. It's a result of the fall. And we as Christians shouldn't say it's a natural thing. It's a result of the fall. And I know it's all going to happen to all of us. But listen, he's conquered death. And if you're not a Christian today, you're just checking faith out. We're so glad you're here. I know this message was a lot to the Christian people in this room. That's my job. They hired me to do this. But the story of Jesus is this, that, that God steps out of heaven, takes on flesh, walks amongst his creation, and lives a life that we could not live and dies a death that we deserve. He dies in our place, on our behalf. And then he rises again, defeating death. And because of what he has done, we have been made right with God, and we too will rise again. The message of the gospel really is not just a, oh, I know that now, check. It's an invitation. What will you do with the message of Jesus? You can't just say that's an interesting fact. It's either I accept or I reject. I'm kind of standing neutral is rejecting it. Will you accept that message?